0: Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. So welcome to a bonus episode. My name is Jo McNamara and I'm joined by my fellow host Nemanjel Canderson.
1: Hi everyone.
0: So this episode is part of a public engagement project funded by the Beacon Bursary Scheme at the University College London. We're incredibly lucky to be part of this project that has brought six young adults who've had radiotherapy together with radiation researchers funded by Cancer Research UK Radnet, City of London, to record these very special episodes of the podcast. These episodes will give each young adult a chance to share their stories and also have important conversations about cancer research and patient involvement in research and clinical trials. So I would like to welcome Helen Herr and Caterina Vega. Thank you so much both for joining us here at RadChat.
2: Thank you for having me. Likewise.
0: So shall we start with you Helen? Um, can you just introduce yourself and, and maybe why you got involved in, in the
2: project? So my name is Helen. I am 27 years old and I'm currently a master's student um, studying child and adolescent mental health. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 20. Um, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma and had treatment for that back in 2016 um, and ever since then I've been involved in various sort of charity participation and campaigning um, and I really wanted to get involved with the podcast. I thought it was something really out of my comfort zone. I've never done anything like this before um, and yeah just a really good chance to have a chat to some researchers and um, and yeah I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I
0: hope we live up to your expectation, Helen. I can already see you're going to be a natural. Katerina,
3: can you introduce yourself for us? Hi, good evening, everyone. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, so my name is Katerina Vega and I'm a cancer researcher at University College London. Um, if I was to describe my role as a researcher, I would probably think I would not fit the typical um, idea that people have of cancer researchers, which is usually someone in a lab (laughs) doing some kind of biology work or in a hospital. I'm actually a physicist by training. And most of my research is in how can we make radiotherapy more and more accurate to try to make it as precise as possible. So that way, we can make sure that our treatments are targeted at the tumours that we want to treat and try to reduce side effects of radiation.
1: Helen, could you tell us how you were diagnosed?
3: Yeah, so it was in
2: March 2016 that I was diagnosed but I think like a lot of young people I was really ill for a long time beforehand. Um, I was in my second year of um, uni and I had some really bad chest pain um, and just wasn't being listened to properly by a lot of doctors and I was being sort of given medication for other things and... Yeah, it was it would get better with medication and then I would go back to having chest pain. And one day I woke up and my face and my neck were all swollen. So I went to the hospital, had a bunch of tests, had a CT scan with some contrast, and I then got diagnosed with lymphoma, a very, very broad, very very basic sort of diagnosis. I didn't know very much at all. And then I was told to go to University College in London, and that was where I had the the majority, well, all the all of my treatment actually. Um, but yeah, it was very it was very quick that day that I got diagnosed, and it seemed really weird that the whole sort of nine months was quite slow, and yeah, I wasn't getting anywhere. And then suddenly, as soon as you have the label cancer, um, everything happens quite quickly. Um, but yeah, so I had a biopsy i had a bone marrow biopsy and i eventually got a diagnosis of primary mediastinal b cell lymphoma so i had a tumor in my chest and under my right armpit and with that i had six rounds of our chemotherapy and then i had radiotherapy i was actually on a clinical trial so at one point there probably was a chance i wasn't going to have chem- um radiotherapy but um, I had a, I still had some cancer left over on a PET scan after chemotherapy. So I had to have some consolidation radiotherapy. So that was 20, 20 fractions. Um, and then in the December, I was in remission by then. So, yeah, it was, it was about sort of 10 months of treatment and then, then in remission. And then sort of, then the journey starts like over again. post-cancer life so yeah. Had
0: you ever thought it was cancer at any point?
2: It, it, It did come as a real shock um I actually thought I had angina at first um which is weird because I've never had chest pain before I don't know what having a heart attack feels like but it felt like it was something maybe to do with my heart I was getting like flutters um and it it sort of made sense with the with the facial swelling and the neck swelling that was actually the tumour then pressing on my um superior cava vein i think that's what it's called anyway um so that kind of made sense in the end as well but yeah cancer was sort of the last thing on my mind i had barely had a headache before cancer so i was i never got ill at all um So yeah, it was just, it was very out of the blue and the way it was also delivered to me was quite abrupt Um, and yeah, I was um, very shocked but I didn't get a lot of sympathy, I guess. I don't want to say I didn't get a lot of sympathy but it was delivered in quite a dry way Um, but it wasn't until I got to um, UCLH that the, um, the team there were a lot more sort of understanding with my situation and sort of explained everything a lot more clearly and I got a lot of booklets and but yeah
1: when you say it was quite dry I don't want to obviously take you back to it again if you don't feel comfortable but just for anyone listening what was said so that hopefully people can learn from it and improve
2: yeah it was um There was there was two there was two chairs and then there was a sort of like a hospital bed and there was a box of tissues on there, so I knew maybe something serious was going to be said and I was with my mum at the time, and we sat down and I think instead of just delivering it a bit better and again I think maybe because of my age, because I wasn't a young person or a child I obviously considered an adult so. I don't know if that had anything to do with it but it was just the words you have lymphoma came out and I was just like well what's that <laughs> it could have been anything at that point to me um, and then when they said it's a type of blood cancer and again you just think like cancer just doesn't happen to you and um, yeah my mum my mom was like inconsolable I was still trying to really process everything and I kept quite a calm and clear head on whereas my mum was my mum was really really upset of course um I have an only child so to hear and I think even if you're not an only child to hear that your son daughter has cancer is you know one of the worst things that can happen but there was just no sort of emotion attached to it from sort of the clinician side of it which looking back on that experience compared to them sort of three hours later when I was at uclh and I had you know my own room I had a social worker I had a cns I think I then even saw my 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 hematology like my hematology consultant um it was a lot like it was a lot different the experience was a lot different at uclh and I don't know if that's because of the sort of the research background to the hospital I think the hospital I had the initial sort of diagnosis in as a local hospital so maybe that was why but yeah it was very direct very dry um but yeah I didn't experience that sort of um I didn't experience that from everyone so that was okay
0: oh thank you for sharing that with us Helen and I can imagine just kind of picturing what you've said it is that care and compassion that you really need when something like that is told to you um and the fact that you've kind of remembered the details of the environment I always say it's so it's so telling, isn't it, when you go into a room and and sometimes when you've got more than one practitioner there or you know, you're asked to be accompanied to an appointment, you already have something in the back of your mind, don't you, that this isn't quite right and this maybe isn't the news that I was expecting. So thank you for sharing that with us. I can imagine it's not easy. Is there anything through your treatment that you think really demonstrated? best practice is there something that you think would stand out that you would love all of care practitioners to kind of learn from
2: yeah I think when I think of that I think of the difference between when I had chemotherapy and radiotherapy Um, my chemotherapy was very rushed at the start Um, I was an inpatient when I had that and I didn't I didn't get a chance to sort of process that and then had that as an outpatient whereas when i had my radiotherapy um i got to have like a little tour of the like basement area um before i had to have like my mask and my tattoos um my tattoos my tattoos put on me and that sort of really calmed me not calmed me down but sort of like reassured me a bit um the machine is quite big and quite scary so I think having a tour of the of the room was quite nice um to see where i'd be and they said i could have music on and the atmosphere was just a lot more nicer downstairs and everything seemed a bit more calmer Um, there wasn't people like rushing around or anything like that so you just automatically felt a bit more safe in the environment as well um and every time i went to have one of my Fractions um, of radiotherapy. Um, it was a really, really smooth process. I was always seen on time, um, and all of the um, and all of the staff are really lovely as well. Katerina, I was going to ask.
0: In the background, physicists do a huge amount of work, but maybe patients like Helen would never see you. Can you just explain what? What is your role within radiotherapy and, and what is it that you
3: do that maybe you'd love patients get to hear about? So I'm an academic in university uh, but some of the work that we do is all about how we can use imaging during the treatment uh, in effective ways to really make sure that the patient is in the right position and that our beam is shaped to the right target that we want to treat. Uh, so we have Uh, different types of projects right that we can run within this um, wider team of what we call image guidance and uh, targeted radiotherapy really Um, one of the the projects we do is on trying to improve the quality of the images that we acquire uh, prior to treatment so there's different types of imaging that can be used i'm sure most will be familiar with for example the use of x-rays um, and to take a planar radiographs uh, as the patient is laying down and adjusting the couch for example but something that we use or we're trying to improve is use of cone beam ct which is a three-dimensional type of imaging but unlike the ct scans you get for treatment planning they tend to be uh, less um what's the best word for it they they tend to be a bit uh, less good quality and sometimes you cannot really do as much with them as you can do with CT scans so we try to improve those images and try to make them more usable for day-to-day treatment of patients but of course there's other things that uh, behind the scenes we do really to try to make sure that treatments are as as precise as they can be
1: Katrina hearing Helen's experience of her diagnosis how does that translate into the work that you do
3: question (laughs) um i think what struck me when i was speaking to ellen and listening to ellen is that sometimes when we talk about radiotherapy as researchers it tends to be a bit uh, ugly duckling of uh, cancer treatment is most of the times that we talk to patients uh or to, to patient representatives is we always hear how challenging it was and how unexpected it was that it was challenging um, and speaking to Ellen was actually quite refreshing to also hear the good experiences throughout these very difficult times and it makes me as a researcher really pleased that I'm able to behind the seats try to, to make sure that the radiotherapy that we're delivering is as good as it can be and in the future potentially even better.
0: Helen were you aware of kind of clinical trials and research within oncology before you maybe got involved after your cancer treatment?
2: I didn't have any knowledge of clinical trials before I had cancer. Um, but as I said earlier, I was put into a clinical trial um, that randomized whether I would have radiotherapy or not. So there was a chance that at some point in my treatment, I might have not had radiotherapy. Um, and so for the clinical trial, I had to have a. I had to have a clear PET scan at the end of my chemotherapy and then I would be randomized to see if I needed chemotherapy or not but because the PET scan showed that there was some there was still some activity they then decided I would have consolidation radiotherapy um which I personally think um was 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 the best idea um I think as katavina said i think a lot of people think of radiotherapy as just as like she said the ugly duckling of the of the cancer treatments and it's when you think of cancer you think chemotherapy first you don't really think of radiotherapy and i think ever since having radiotherapy i have more of like a respect for it as well it had such an impact on my treatment and the fact that i became it well the fact that i reached remission as well Um, And especially for my type of cancer that I had, the primary mediastinal, consolidation radiotherapy has a really high success rate because it's quite an aggressive cancer. Um, So along with the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy um, just accelerates sort of remission even further. So um, so yeah, I've just, yeah.
0: (laughs) And in terms of kind of the consent process, you know, what made you want to be part of a clinical trial?
2: I guess at the beginning, and I guess when I was signing it, this was about seven, eight years ago now. So I think I'm not sure what was going through sort of my mind then, but I can only talk for now that I am very glad that I did the clinical trial. Um, I think clinical trials are really important because how else are we going to know if a if if a treatment works or does or doesn't work? Um, but I think at the time I was in such sort of a bubble that I was presented with the study and I th- there wasn't a reason for me to say no. Um, but I guess in the end, it was sort of not that the clinical trial was sort of I don't want to say void and redundant because that's not because because being on the trial was good. But in the end, I still had to have the radiotherapy anyway. Um, and there could have been a chance where I didn't where I, well where if the chemotherapy had worked, then I would have had to have radiotherapy as well. So there was always a 50-50 chance. But um, but yeah, I am glad I did the the clinical trial, even though after even though after my PET scan, I had to come off it and and still have the radiotherapy anyway.
1: Katarina, with through your research, what aspects of the imaging are you trying to improve at the moment? So for people like Helen who have the treatment.
3: So um, some of the work that we're doing is really on trying to to improve the image quality. um, Because when we do radiotherapy, um, we need to know exactly what dose that radiation is giving. And so we we use complicated maths to try to to assess that. right? Um, And we can extract important information about how radiation interacts with different tissues from the images. But what happens is when you have images that are not um, of good quality, they're corrupted with noise, um, a limited field of view, and other types of issues that they may have. It really limits how accurately we can know the dose that we gave. And we typically treat um, we plan radiotherapy as if we have a treatment planning scan, which is the the, the patient at the moment they came, but then we deliver it multiple fractions. And sometimes it becomes important to monitor how the anatomy can change during fractions to make sure that we're still targeting the right areas as it goes along. So for example, uh, if you, for example, very simple um, example is of head and neck patients that they tend to lose weight and so that changes the path the beam goes through and exactly how much dose you give. So, by monitoring day to day and being able to have good quality images that allow us to do these dose calculations, we can really assess if we're doing the right treatment every day and if not, decide if it needs some kind of adaptation. So that's, for example, one of the possible applications of improving image quality um, during treatment itself. One of the things that um that's one of my interests in research is really how, how we can reduce late effects of radiation, and we we were talking like these long-term side effects that come from the treatments. And you were telling us a lot about our your um, path throughout your cancer diagnosis and your treatment. But I sort of wanted to ask, if you don't mind, is how is it nowadays? How is, how can it still be affecting you, and how are you still going through the the experience five years later, more down the line? So.
2: On like so on on the whole, I I am doing fine. Um, the the only thing that I now have, I still have sort of s- surveillance for is, um, radio. Th- I because of because of the radiotherapy, I now have to have um, yearly MRIs, um, on my breast area, um, just because of where I had the radiotherapy. So I was part of the, or I believe I was on the Bard, the Bard database. Um, so I, I think that's where you've, if you've had radiotherapy under a certain age for for lympho- I think specifically for lymphoma, but it can involve other cancers as well. Um, y- you have a high, you have a high higher chance of, of breast cancer in the future because of the radiotherapy that you've had, and you get called up either, I believe it's either eight years after finished or seven or eight years after finishing treatment or or when you turn 25 whatever whichever one comes first so i had mine actually last month um but i'll be honest that process wasn't particularly simple um i should have had it a couple of years ago i guess because of covid um they weren't they weren't doing very many of them, but since I've moved um, from London to further north, the um, actually the MRI waiting times were um, were considerably less. And when I moved here, I got a appointment sort of straight away, and that process was, was really simple, and I got my results really quickly as well. Um, so I don't know if that's like a postcode lottery situation where depending where you are you get seen a bit quicker but that made the experience a bit more better as well but I think for me knowing that I have these yearly MRIs just puts my mind at rest as well um I always the first couple of years after after having cancer I got very um like het up about reading like studies on what sort of long-term side effects I would be looking at and how, you know, when they would sort of present themselves. And I've learnt to not rely on information online and, you know, to just have the information that my team gave me in the end, um, at the end of treatment and just look out for the signs that, you know, that might present themselves, but Touchwood, everything is fine again the cancer I had um after sort of two years the the risk goes down so much so in that respect um I'm sort of I'm sort of content with myself at that but I'm I'm happy that I have some surveillance still um it just gives me a bit of peace of mind
1: how does it make you feel thinking that you've had this treatment um but there's still more kind of problems or consequences from it
2: it's really weird because it's it's really it's a really like conflicting feeling because I had a really great I say great experience but my radiotherapy experience was really smooth and again like I was saying to Katerina, um my experience was quite positive um you know even from the like them showing me around from actually having the treatment and the actual side effects of radiotherapy um I tolerated them quite well um so and i'll always be i'll always be grateful for the staff and for looking after me and again you know the cancer has a very high success rate with radiotherapy so you know without radiotherapy that sort of 20 or 30 percent of cancer you know would have you know would have still been there and i think without radiotherapy remission wouldn't have been achievable um so it's sort of bittersweet to know that even though the treatment itself was, for me, quite a smooth and positive process, that now there is sort of more long-term side effects. But again, I think as long as I'm being surveillanced and looked at, that puts my mind at rest a lot. And, you know, I know what to look out for. And, yeah, I've stopped looking at Google for these really, really, you know, long longitudinal studies that show x y and z so um so yeah and it's a bit it's a bit of a bittersweet feeling but but yeah
0: how is your family coping with it Helen because I'm just just because obviously your mum's reaction to you being diagnosed I'm just thinking you know do you find that she's still living it with you thinking about kind of could it come back what are the long-term consequences of treatment
2: I think she probably is um, I think it's it's really it's a, sometimes it can be a really hard subject to bring about especially on those sort of cancer anniversaries um, so like particularly like on the date that I was diagnosed or on the date of remission and things like that um, it's it's sort of really hard to bring up those conversations I feel anyway um, At at the time I felt like there wasn't really much support for parents and I think and, and, and I understand a lot of the a lot of the focus was on me was getting me better and and even after even after sort of treatment there again there was a lot of focus on getting me back sort of you know back into the sort of normal world and back to work you know start socializing again finding people you know finding other young you know people who have who have had cancer, and I feel like sometimes my mum was sort of left to sort of maybe deal with it on her own a little bit and it's really hard because you know I don't want to assume that she's feeling a certain type of way, but again, I think because I'm an only child, I think she really it it really did um it really did affect her and I think it does still affect her today that to know that you know her, her her daughter had cancer and but i think she's really sort of how like proud of how far i've come as well um but yeah i think um i think the support was not well she probably would say the support was probably not lacking i think she's had to go through a lot of emotions on her own um she's probably not wanted to want she probably not wanted to burden me with them but um but yeah, it's it's one of those subjects that's sort of really difficult to bring up, and you almost just sort of like submerge them, and you don't want to talk about them. And so yeah, it's, yeah, sometimes it's a bit hard to talk about it.
3: I mean, it's uh, it's kind of difficult to hear, right? I I know that El- Ellen said something like, "Oh, I had a positive experience," but and I I think it's like um. It's interesting to see her try to, to bring uh, like what was not horrible in what was a terrible situation right because I, I don't think that the situation is easy like nothing about this is easy right but the the, the coping with it and uh, the trying to bring a good spin and continue your life I think is very heartwarming for me to listen to it.
0: Katarina how have you found being involved in this project has it affected how you think you're going to carry out research in the future at
3: all? Uh, I think it's, it's kind of like, because I'm, um, as I said, I'm probably not your typical researcher that I'm a clinical researcher, right? Um, it's, it's a bit hard to sometimes take uh, the experience I hear from speaking with people that had cancer and went into the treatment into changing the research that we do uh, because we, we kind of work on a different layer than the immediate impact on, on the, the perspective. But for me, it's it's really important sometimes to to have this conversation and remind myself about why we do this type of research, because I most of my work is hidden behind a computer, with, behind a screen. I don't deal with patients on a daily basis. And so it becomes quite easy to be a bit detached from actually the the importance of what we're working on. And it does help me boost my my motivation to, to keep on working in this area and trying to, to improve the treatments that we do because, well, it may not impact someone tomorrow, but I hope that as technology evolves that it keeps impacting the, the, the patients that will come in the next five to 10 years and that their experience is as good as it can be in a terrible, terrible situation, right?
0: And do you have any questions for Katerina as a researcher? Is there anything that you've kind of always wanted to ask someone who's maybe kind of proposing or put, putting bids in for for research grants?
2: Yeah, I just always wondered sort of how the how the applications what what the what, what the process of the applications are and how how actually easy or hard is it to get funding for for different research projects and and yeah, so yeah, I would, I'd just love to know a little bit more about the actual process of applying for a, res- for, for a research project.
3: Well, um, it's typically quite hard. I would say like the success rate of between going from a funding and application to get funding to do the research typically is quite low. Um, it would be hard for me to quote a number, but because it depends on the schemes and different opportunities, but I would say certainly more on the order of a 10 to 20% max in good schemes, and some of them even even lower. It's it's very competitive to to get funding, um, and it's also um, a process that needs a lot of preparation because you have to build a proposal, and the proposal has to cover different parts about from a lay summary. we actually talking with uh, people like Helen, really helps to shape it into a brief summary about what the work tries to achieve into a more of an introduction, setting up the scene about the work that has been done, what are the aims, what are the key objectives, why are they important, what is the impact that they will have at the end? Because what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve may not be exactly the same thing, right? Uh, As in, um, we may be developing technology, we may be developing new treatments, but really what we want to achieve is better cure rates, less side effects, so that's kind of like our end goals um and also then you have to come up with a work plan on how if you have a two-year project what are you going to be doing th- during those two years who are you be- going to be working with um and so it once you end up working on a proposal it can be easily six to eight pages of all this justification about what you want to do and why um and then when you submit of course you like if i submit to to a call uh for funding I'm probably not the only one going for it. So (laughs) at the end, you end up competing with a lot, a lot of good ideas. And it can be like you can have a very good research idea that does not get funded and it does need also some resilience to keep on going and making sure that the work that you want to be doing is out there and keeps getting done, really.
1: You made a good point about resilience, Katerina. I'm sure there's lots of people listening who have been rejected and they've put something in, they've put loads of time and effort in, they know they're passionate about it and they'll just get a no. And actually, Helen, sometimes the feedback you'll get is brutal. It can be really painful to read it and think you've poured everything into this, you know it's going to help patients. Nah, nothing. Or well, sometimes you don't get a response at all, apart from you've been rejected. So I think that's also something that's quite difficult. Um, I'm sure, Katarina, you've probably been through that same process.
3: Yeah, I was going to say the resilience is is something that you do need also as a researcher, right? Uh, Because the most likely thing that happens when you submit for a grant funding is that you're gonna get rejection rejection out of it because the chances are higher that you will fail. And as uh, Naman said, sometimes you don't even get feedback uh, about why, because then if you get feedback, at least you can try to work out towards the right way to going. But I usually tell myself when I get a rejection is I have 24 hours to cry about it and then I move along. (laughs) Not after the next one.
1: Katarina, how can people like Helen influence what research grants are put calls out for?
3: I think by making their voices heard really. Um I do work on a research that focused more on side effects of radiation and typically the impression i have is that it makes it a bit more difficult to get funding because the the impact is less obvious and less immediate right then compared to say i'm developing a new drug to improve survival that you can see after one two years if that works or not well if you want to have an effect on quality of life you probably need more time to do it so i I think in that sense, actually, what I was going to ask Ellen is um, if she had 30 seconds to, to convince someone to, to fund more research in Lady effects, what would it be her pitch?
2: You're putting me on the spot here. Well, I th- I think that i think that especially especially the 16 to 25 age range that's sort of what i'm passionate about i think think a lot of more research needs to be done between the 16 to 25 and even though i don't have a sort of clinician or i don't have a um, medical background i'm very interested in sort of the the emotional and sort of social side of young people and their experiences with cancer and yes, I think more. I think more needs to be done to improve their quality of life, um, especially after their cancer journey. And um, and yeah, to stop stop them feeling so isolated within their cancer journey, because it's very hard to find other young people who who go through the same experiences as you. So to definitely improve the experiences of of, of young people who experience cancer, definitely. I know that wasn't great, but that's all I could think of. I think that was a really good pitch.
0: And something that I picked up on that I think definitely does not get discussed enough is exactly, as you've said, the social aspects of having cancer and particularly in that age range, because I don't know, did you have a job? Were you looking for a job? But, you know, I know you said you were studying, but, you know, studying costs a lot of money. And, you know, how did you support yourself while you were going through it? cancer diagnosis and treatment
2: i had i had a part-time job um at a big well-known supermarket um but obviously had to give that up um but i then just rely i had to then rely on benefits my mom had to give up her work to look after me so we didn't have an income at all and I was very very lucky with the benefits process, Um, I know it can be really really daunting applying for those benefits and if you don't know how to fill those forms out then you get a rejection for that as well but I was very very lucky um, in that I was in receipt of um, PIP and ESA Um, but as soon as I could I sort of went back to work as as sort of quickly but also made sure that you know i was ready to go back and i went back at my own pace um but yes i definitely think there is um a lack of a lack of awareness sort of for young people's experiences socially and emotionally especially after treatment i think there's a lot of focus around during treatment um but i think and this is a lot of this comes from my own experience but I think after treatment there is you're sort of left to your own devices and you're left to go and sort of make or build your life back up by yourself and um I really struggled with that and I really struggled sort of not knowing any other young person so I had to go and find that I had to find those resources those resources didn't come to me um but what I did find was really really good and I, yeah, I've learned a lot of my journey. So,
0: Helen, what support mechanisms did you utilise? Were there any charities or support groups that that you would kind of promote to anyone going through cancer diagnosis and treatment? I,
2: I was, hev- I was quite heavily involved with um, Click Sergeant. Well, I know they're they're known as Young Lives versus Cancer now, um, but I actually had a social worker from the from from the charity from day one and she supported me throughout my cancer journey um or throughout my treatment Um, and then unfortunately she left um and then i went back to the charity after i started uh, after i finished treatment and i just really wanted to get involved in any sort of participation um talking to other young people i really wanted to have a sort of voice within the community as well And I wanted, you know, the people that were in charge of these charities to hear us as young people. And I really wanted to be empowered. And they did that. And they listened a lot. And um, from that, a a lot of experiences and a lot of opportunities came my way. I had a meeting with Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister and one of the cancer ministers, Joe Churchill, at the time. We spoke about sort of again, you know, the impact of, you know, COVID on young people with cancer. And again, my experience was was before COVID, so it was completely different. But um and again without the charity, I wouldn't have been able to complete my dissertation, which was looking at the experiences of young people and the word survivor. Um so that's what I looked at for my dissertation: whether young people who have had cancer identify with the word "survivor" and what that word means to people, and whether they would identify with that word, and if they wouldn't, what what word would they identify with? So that was very interesting carrying out that research as well. So I'm a little bit of a researcher myself. <laughs> I mean,
0: God tell us the answer, Helen. What 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 came out of it?
2: <laughs> well, overwhelmingly. The five out of the six people that I interviewed, because um, of time constraints, couldn't interview too many people, but um, it was a lot of negatives around the word survivor, um, and even around the word remission, surprisingly, which I didn't actually think of before the research. Um, but yes, a lot of people did, really did not like the word survivor. Um, and thought and I think you know a lot of people have opinions on that word and I think a lot of it was that it implies that you know you had to you had to fight to survive and you know maybe those that didn't you know that's that they they passed and um but yeah there was a lot of negativity around that word and again a lot around the word remission as well I had a couple of people say that the word remission was very sort of like cut and dry and it felt like a bit final in their journey, whereas um, you know, they still have long-term side effects, so they might not they might not resonate with the word survivor um uh, with the Roman mission. Sorry, so um, yeah, it was really interesting.
1: Helen, how do those two words resonate with you?
2: I probably wouldn't call myself a survivor, um, but I. I think I would definitely still call myself in remission. I could probably say cured, but I would still say remission. I think, I think I've got to that point now where I can differentiate between remission and having long term side effects. To me, there's they're two different things now, and I think what a lot of people were conveying to me was that having the long term side effects, they, you know, they don't think that they had reached, you know, complete or full remission. But I think for me, where I am, um, again, you know, I've stopped sort of, you know, contextualising everything. And I can call myself in remission or potentially cured, but I can still have those long term side effects. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't probably call myself a survivor.
1: Katerina, when you think about late effects or late consequences... And from a research perspective, how would you want to be able to get more data and understanding around it?
3: I think the issue really lies on the data that we have to better understand it. Um, I think that the reality is it's five, ten years down the line and being able to really collate all the information about how... um, what the side effects may be and when they're appearing it becomes it really really challenging to to keep that record going on and because they are so diverse and so varied really uh it's it's hard to put them in a box right and and then it, it's a lot of diverse information that needs to be collected to really get a grasp about okay this was the treatment we gave how did it lead to all these different uh things down the line and really i think when it comes to research it needs a bit more investment in this type of infrastructure that probably uh, collates uh, this information so that other researchers like me can go back and try to find these links and better understand what about the treatments we're doing are really leading to them. And if there are specific risk factors that we can try to then, okay, if we know um, there's a specific risk risk factor, maybe we can change slightly how we do the treatment to have a lesser risk, for example. But I feel a lot of it comes down to, do we have the data to, to gather as understanding? And probably at the moment, no, I do have a lot of data, but very simple, but to the level of detail that's really needed. We're not there yet but can i add something because i actually had the pleasure of reading ellen's thesis (laughs) she shared it with me uh, about a week ago and it was quite interesting to go through the work that she has done actually i was thinking i'm here as the researcher but she also has a lot of expertise uh, herself and uh, i i think it it was quite like enlightening sometimes to to hear these perspectives because me as a researcher, when I think of the definition of survivor is really is what we have, that scientific definition, which is five years down the line has not recurred. And so we set that as kind of a, a threshold, right, to start to look at late effects and things like this. And it had never even crossed my mind before meeting Ellen that even that word it, it may not be have good associations, and I may have used it without thinking about it myself. And it's really important that we listen and that we are educated about it. it. It also felt, reading Ellen's thesis, that it's quite polarizing, right? Depending on the experience each person has. But really to have awareness that sometimes we we may use words, expressions that we don't mean um to have a negative impact right and somehow it has and from my side it felt really like okay i learned something today about how to approach this and and it's good to to be informed it's a really interesting point isn't it because when we look at
0: kind of medical research medical articles you know we kind of characterize Patients, or is it a person living with cancer? You know, there's lots of different terminologies about things. And I don't think there is a consensus. And sometimes it is about going to the patients and saying, what would you like to be called? Or, you know, what would you like to be referred to in terms of your long term follow-up of care Um katerina i was really interested in something that you said it just kind of prompted me to think do you think there needs to be better recording of patient information because i certainly know from my own experience of having a cancer diagnosis that you know you've got notes in one place you know that are stored with one person that doesn't then get communicated to primary care then I go for bloods at my GP surgery, but then that isn't relayed to my oncologist. So you have to have twice as many bloods, I have to pay the six pound parking. Um, when you're like, I know my blood. <laughs> bloods have already been taken. But, you know, with us maybe introducing more proms, and more standardized follow up, do you think that that's what needs to happen for for not only for our patients and for, you know, people working clinically, but also for
3: researchers. I'd never thought about it before. A hundred percent. I think like that's one of the issues that we have is. The people come for their treatments, as you say, a lot of data gets collected, although later it's not easily accessible, right, by researchers, um, and it's it's a bit of a balance because I, if you have a data that is very very detailed, it's really hard to to keep it right because then you'll have missing data, you'll have a lot of issues, and so there's a bit of a balance between trying to have enough data to be able to run studies, um, and the more time you run it, the harder it is to ke- keep a very complex database. But I think certainly. Um, from a researcher point of view, trying to improve the the collection and the storage and the accessibility of data is really important for us to keep improving the, the NHS for the future, really.
0: Oh, well, thank you both so much. It's gone really quickly. We've probably got another... 50 questions we could ask you um but before we go we always end rad chat with some top tips so Caterina, if i come to you first are there any top tips that you'd give to any listeners out there
3: i think if um from a researcher point of view um following this this experience with the podcast my my top tip is Actually, every once in a while to to take a step back and distance yourself from your research, your day to day job and really remind yourself about the the impact that heat has and to reflect on uh, the patient journey and how you can make small contributions to help improve it even if they are not clear on a day-to-day and remind yourself about why we we do this research into cancer really
2: yes i think if any young people are hearing this and they are either just coming out of treatment or they are a few years out of treatment but are still sort of feeling a bit lost um i know it's easier said than done, but you know, life does get better, and you know, life does sort of life, like I say, goes back to a some sort of normal. It goes back to your sort of normal, um, and you know, I think it is really important for young people to really get involved with projects like this and bring their invaluable first-hand experience, and you know, share share their experiences with people like yourselves, Katarina, and and yeah and just really really sort of be voices and empower yourselves and so you know research and treatments can be improved for you know future young people who have to then go through the same thing but um but yeah
0: Ah, oh, brilliant top tips from both of you. Thank you so so much. It's been a really interesting episode, and thank you so much both of you for sharing your um, experiences, and especially Helen for um, going through again your diagnosis and treatment. I know sometimes it can be triggering, so we really appreciate you sharing with us. So thank you all for listening to our chat. Your hosts today have been myself, joe McNamara, and Jolka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to the resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked with the podcast. There's also an evaluation link for this series in the show notes, so please do take some time to complete it. So thank you all for listening and take care.